0: certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon.
1: And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim?
0: Now, one man stands accused. If police are right, and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years.
2: The forensic officer who found crucial evidence, including clothing at Carragatta Cemetery, today in court solved an unanswered question. This is day 29 of the trial. Welcome to Claremont in Conversation. I'm Natalie Bonjolo joined today by Tim Clark from the West and Alison Fan from Channel 7. Welcome to you both.
0: Hi guys. Thank
2: you. This afternoon you heard evidence from the man who actually found the items belonging to the 17 year old rape victim. Can you talk us through what he found?
0: Yes. So this is Sergeant Adam McCulloch. We we, we prefaced him a little bit last week Um as the, the the McCulloch in AJM, which is the, um, the the signifier that a lot of the crucial um, exhibits, particularly from Kira, have on them. But um, he also had been working at forensics for so long that he was also, <clears throat> he was also involved in the uh, in the Karakata rape um, investigation some years earlier, um, and was in fact the officer on the scene that took um, w- was taken to the scene by by um, other detectives and then um, found the clothes um, the shoes, the shorts um, of the the victim of the Karakata rape and took them into his possession as exhibits and, and as we know the, particularly the shorts um, are very important because they are said to contain fibres that, that link to the, uh, the other Claremont um, crimes so um a bit of a coincidence, but a happy coincidence, I suppose, in that uh, they can have a, an officer who, uh, who who spans this investigation from from start to now the near near the finish.
2: And we'd heard in previous podcasts there was this confusion over the labelling of the clothing, whether it was a skirt and was it shorts, and and people were asking us, listeners were questioning, you know, could it be a pair of shorts? Um, was this explained today? Um, there was some confusion because it's the pair
1: of shorts or the skirt whether they were joined uh, to make it uh, one of those what we used to call um, skirt or some there was this there was a very unusual thing where it was joined but it re- really looked like a, a skirt but was was act fact joined at the crotch so that made a pair of shorts but um yeah
2: there's been a lot into that and it's interesting isn't it i mean to we've we've seen these inconsistencies but then just like that someone can then maybe step forward and explain why we've been been hearing it sort of reported in a certain way
0: yeah i mean that's the nature of a trial i suppose now and, a, and a, certainly a long trial like this one is is that you you know you've got to do it in some sort of order and there will be questions raised uh, earlier on in the trial, which will then get answered when, when, when witnesses get their turn to, to give their evidence. And that's what happened today. Mr McCulloch said, yes, it was me. I was the one who wrote um, skirt uh, and, and, and panties on this, uh, on this bag that actually we, they now being described as shorts. Um, I mean, realistically, it doesn't really matter whether they're a skirt or, or, or a skirt or a short. Um, what does matter is that the, the fibre that's on on that material and and, and how it got there and, and where it came from. So so yeah, there was there was one of one little question um, answered today. But Mr McCulloch's more important role really is is, is was that of the exhibits officer in Kira Glenn's post mortem because we, we we got to. Here the start of his evidence where he described how he was given all these exhibits that were being taken from the body, um, including the the, the crucial fingernails and Kira's shirt, and he was the one who was given the responsibility to put them into the packaging, whether they be yellow top containers or, in the shirt's case, a a, a brown paper bag, um, seal them up, label them, and then um, hand them off to to where they needed to go.
1: And, of course, what's also coming out is... um some detectives had quite a bit of knowledge about DNA and not DNA so much, but contamination and cross-contamination. Others have said they had no knowledge of it at all, that uh, there was nothing in the regulations or procedures. But a couple of the detectives who've obviously um, looked and educated themselves by reading things at the time are quite adamant that they were very, very aware of cross-contamination, what not to touch, where to walk, uh, exclusion zones and and that sort of thing. I think probably a couple of the younger ones um, are quite cluey about what what they did and what they didn't do.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting point, Ali, in in how their practices. You know, I mean, they, they all say they did things by the book, but um, how how far they did them, I suppose, is is, is coming coming into question um certainly um uh, detective uh, superintendent sorry lean Bruggen who <laughs> gave mm. evidence yesterday was cross examined today he was i mean he was quite certain of, of, of how he treated um his role at a crime scene was which was to you know to keep as much distance between himself and a, and, a, and a, a body and any potential evidence um, unless it was his specific role to touch it and so yeah there there has been some, some differences there um but it's been noticeable to me that whenever a a detective has been questioned um they're very a lot of them have been very on the very on the front foot to to say i i certainly wouldn't open a bag or touch a body or go anywhere near a body um because of the of the fear of contamination it's just when they're asked about what they Believe that contamination might be, whether it be DNA or trace evidence or fibers or fingerprints. Um, some of their recollections and some of their, um, uh, you know, recourse was is, is a little bit different.
1: Of course, there's never been a trial like this, which hinges purely on the forensic evidence. Never, never been one like this
0: before. So well, that's never, why it's never also, one this big. That's, that's like, absolutely sc- yeah, absolutely for sure.
2: Did Sergeant McCulloch, uh, was he asked whether he had touched the body at any stage?
0: He was, he was, and uh, and he was one of the few to admit that he had. But that was that was above board as as it was because he was tasked with helping collect the exhibits. Um, he said at one point he took hold of Kira's left hand during the post mortem, um, while um, the mortuary technician, Mr. McDermott, who we heard from last week was actually clipping those fingernails. And again, because we can't see this vision, because it's deemed too sensitive to show in open court, we're having to go on descriptions and narration, and as it comes up, um, it it did appear today that it was was Sergeant McCulloch's job to to hold that hand while the fingernails were being cut. And once again, we know how crucial those fingernails are going to be.
2: Was he quizzed at all on another mystery? And this is who collected RH17, this pristine ha- hair sample. Did he have any answers for that?
0: Oh, Ali's right across this one. I'll let her. Oh, down.
2: thank you, Tim. No, not at all. I'm struggling to, to keep up with
1: all of these numbers. Um, are we going to find out any more about that?
0: I I'm joking. I think we will, but um, it, 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 I mean, it's one of those things that because we can't see, it, it would have, from the post mortem vision, it would have, it would appear that there's some sort of uh, lack of recall from those who were there about w- w- where it was taken uh, at the body and then where uh, at the crime scene. I apologise, and then and then where it went from there. But there was another a small step on that road today when uh, Mr. McCulloch was shown. A form that he filled out that confirmed that he was the one that actually took possession of it um, and then handed it off to um, uh, to Laurie Webb at, at, at Path West, um, where it um, where it eventually was stored. So we do know that it, it, it made its way to Sergeant McCullough, but we still don't know exactly who it was that um, that that made the uh, made the seizure at, at the scene.
2: I think maybe just like the shirt, uh, the skirt and the short situation, um, this could be answered. At some point, someone will say, yes, that was actually me who took that hair sample. Because um, how many how many officers were there that day? I think you mentioned before in a previous podcast, Tim.
0: Oh, I the at the. Glennon oh, crime scene, we think we think over 20 now we've counted, given the macro detectives, homicide detectives, local detectives. We heard about these two forensic um, analysts yesterday, and then all the forensic officers. You've had uh, um, mortuary people there. You've had funeral people there. You've had coroner's people there. So, yeah, it's an absolute multitude of people at, at, at such an important crime scene. But once again, we know the magnitude of this, this investigation and this this the, the discovery of Kira's body was the absolute pinnacle of it, I suppose, um, up until maybe eight weeks ago when the trial started.
1: And they're going a lot into the labelling and the relabelling. In fact, today they talked about there were multi... Uh, versions of a particular running sheet and you've got what the hair the, which, which was RH17 which was Hamala's, um initials right and then it goes to AM and a few of them were written over each other on the um, evidence or well, the photographs that we were shown um, in fact today's account from the cross examination was quite quite an unusual bizarre it gave him a spelling test and, and again that was only I, mean, I thought gosh where's this going how do you spell maggot and then how do you how do you spell entomology and then down the track we learnt that his misspelling was the only way he recognised the writings of the, these various running sheets because he spelt maggot M-A-G-A-T entomology, he started with A-E-N-T and then got completely lost. And we thought, well, where is this going? But then down the track when he was asked to identify which was his writing and which wasn't, they could tell because he was consistently spelling maggot as M-A-G-A-T and entomology with an A-E-N-T. So they could distinguish because there were so many different rewrites and versions of the one one account of collecting exhibits.
0: Mm. And obviously, I mean, that could be important only if there are major discrepancies between them but obviously it's the defense's job to try and tease that out and they're also entitled to every version of that running sheet including any photocopies i think the original was eventually uh, you know uh, seen and, and produced in court by the prosecutor Carmel barbara gallo uh, and the, the judge at the end of it said well what's why do i need this one as well um uh, basically proving the point that it it is a long and, and detailed process and at, at times can be can seem to be a little bit uh, a little bit tedious and, um, and I'm not taking us anywhere but uh, well, I suppose it is very important to have every version of all these exhibit lists just in case something major has appeared or disappeared off one or the other
2: so this cross examination was of um, Superintendent Limbrugan, who was on the stand yesterday. Now he his um, evidence was adjourned yesterday, and and the cross examination uh, continued today. What was that for? Well, that was because Paul Jovic um,
1: wanted a bit more time to prepare his cross examination on an issue that rose yesterday that he had not been told or not uh, not aware of fully. And, in fairness, the judge said, "Yes, you can go away if you want to He said, "Look, I might not find anything, but I want to have another look at it." Uh, there's been a little bit of bargy bargy about discovery, what's been given to the defence, and what hasn't been, not very much, but enough that it'll cause an adjournment so that the defence can have an, a closer look at what's been presented to see what they want to pick holes in the next day."
2: You also heard from another mortuary technician today what information did he have?
0: Yes, so this was um a colourful-looking gent called Brian Mushmore, um who'd worked for many, many years, as a lot of these mortuary technicians appeared to do, um, uh, in the one spot, um, in the state mortuary. Um, and he was, in in particular, he was asked about a, a couple of things that he'd never been asked to do before, um, in particular talking about Kira's hair um, the, or the hair mass that was taken from her body during the post-mortem, um, to briefly recap we know how important this is going to be because there were multiple fibers found in it when it was eventually examined as a whole many many years later in fact after mr edwards's arrest but at one point mr mooshmore said that he had been tasked by his boss mr mcdermott to take the hair mass as it had been stored which it was in a plastic bag and to place it in this so-called billy bucket which are just the plastic buckets with the lids on top um, and but but we never really got to hear why he was asked to do that and he could only testify to the fact that he had been asked to do it and he did it um, but during that he was obviously again asked for well, what clothes did you wear and what's you know what what was your process and and how how, how much care did you take <clears throat> such to the point uh, Mr. Mushmore, as he appeared in the dock today, um, was a very hirsute gentleman with a with a resplendent grey beard which, which which came way down to the almost to the middle of his chest. So uh, we know how important contamination in hairs and fibres are. So, Jennifer Cleary, the defence lawyer, questioned him on did he have that beard then? When did he get rid of it? If uh, he did get rid of it, and Mr. will quite candidly said, "Well, I got divorced in 1992, so I cut it off," and then I only grew it back 20 years later. So that's the type of detail that we we are getting into now, um, forensic detail. And if you pardon the pun again, because the defence is looking for any tiny inroad, possible source of of, of contamination, and uh, and that that was uh, Mr. Mushmore's contribution to that uh, that part of the trial.
2: When the witnesses are asked these, you know, really minute details, uh, do they react in any way, Tim?
0: <laughs> um, some have quizzical looks on their faces. A lot, most—I've got to say, most—are t- taking it. Well, no, I-, I will say all are very taking it very seriously. Um, some are a little bit confused by the question, but most of the witnesses um, take their time. And, and, and if they need to think about it, they're obviously given as much time as they need to, to think about their answer because it's very important because they are under oath and, uh, and they, they've sworn to, to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but. So, um, but, yeah, there, there, there's been a few little raised eyebrows and, uh, and, and head tilts, at the, particularly at the defence uh, line of questioning. But uh, the witnesses, it's, it's not theirs to reason why. It's just there to answer the question.
1: And he was very precise about exactly war, why he wore double gloves and, and so forth. The the detectives, too, have been questioned about what they wore, but they said they followed the orders. They were very much under the instructions of the forensic pathologists while they were in the mortuary. They just did, in fact, the guys that were recording it were just being told what to record uh, because the uh, defence said, well, when you're writing this down, he said, well, I'm just not writing it down from my observations. I'm writing it down what." I'm being told and what's being described to me. So um, they were very much following
2: the forensic pathologies, uh, pathologists rather, at the time. I mean, it's very interesting and what you've both mentioned is this 23-year this time gap between the serial killings and this court case, you know, it really is testing the memory of every single witness who stands up. Well, where I was talking to the
1: cameraman afterwards who were all called to the scenes and very few of us can remember exactly what happened. We can remember, as the policeman said, things that are vivid, that are not of relevance, uh, you remember, but the other details, it's a long time ago.
0: Yeah, and what's, I mean, most also being tested now is the is the, the strength of the of the forensic and, and investigative processes at the time. Uh, I mean, anyone can be excused for having a memory lapse or not remembering it, what any details, let alone all the details from that long ago, but I think what, where the where the where the defence is going certainly is to is to say there are no no excuses for bodgy note taking, any corners that were cut or any um, even as primitive as the processes were with regards to DNA back then, you still needed to follow them as, as to the letter, and and that's what, what the defence has been um, so meticulous in trying, in trying to tease out is, is any breakdowns in the processes um, at, at the time, which might lead to, um, you know, a p- possible um, bungles, you know, where we are now.
2: Given the nature of um, the evidence that's being presented at the moment, is it as busy in the courtroom? Are as many people turning up to the, to the public areas? There are. It's still very crowded. Um, People popping in,
1: even to this particular testimony, which is quite grim listening to it. It it is just a methodical clinical post-mortem description recording as is required for a coroner. But to listen to it, I I didn't think it would um, attract that many people as as opposed to listening to witnesses uh, describing the scene. But it, it is still attracting a very big crowd.
0: I've never seen anything like it in all the court cases I've covered. I mean, you you do get the odd court case that does attract attention and people will come for the odd day. Um, But, I mean, consistently, I mean, the signs were up of the court full. Signs were up again earlier this week. Today it was, you know, almost standing room only, although they don't actually let people stand in the court. Um, And they're not the same faces every day either. No, they're there are not. different people coming to watch um, this this extraordinary trial in action, which uh, I, I'm, I'm really glad about because so often people have, you know, members of the public quite rightly have their opinions on how a justice system works, but very few actually come and watch it in action from my standpoint, unless you're directly involved with it. But this trial, um, you know... Because of the, the sensational nature of it, is as I, I think is, is attracting interest into the you know actually what a courtroom looks like and what a court process um, feels like and and, and and which I personally think can only be good mm. for uh, the general knowledge of the general public as to, as to how a trial works.
2: Yeah, I mean, as you've said, Tim, to, for, for the public to be engaging in the justice system in this way when we're hitting week seven is really gobsmacking.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. But encouraging in, in terms of people apparently wanting to see for themselves rather than, uh, you know, rely on reports, which obviously we're trying to do our best to bring it to as many people as we can, as clearly and accurately and as, as we can, because that's our jobs. But um, just to, to for people to give up their time at a busy time of year to come to the come to the courtroom and sit there quietly and, and respectfully um, has, has been um, it's really interesting to see.
2: And we know how great the interest is just by the um, sheer volume of feedback that we receive every single day. Um, we have a couple of listener questions before we go. This one's from Tony yeah. Gibb. In the most recent podcast, Profiling a Serial Killer, it was mentioned by Tim that jewellery was missing from Kira's body when it was found. Firstly, mm. was there any jewellery apart from the watch that was missing from Jane's body? Secondly, was there any such items found while searching the house?
0: Um, so, well, there's a couple of questions in there. Mm. Um, the, uh, so, yeah, Kira, I mentioned there was one earring um, missing, but there, there, there was jewelry um, attached to her body as well a, a bracelet I understand a watch that was actually still working yes. that's still telling oh. time oh. Um, uh, and then from Jane um, well we certainly obviously know her watch was went missing but that was wasn't on, on the body but was found um, separately but then they brought they brought the two together um, from memory, yes, were, Jane still had a chain around her neck, I understand, that was, that was still there. Um, one piece of jewellery that was, was at the time of Kira's disappearance that has never been found, you'll remember this, Ali? Yes, I do. The, yeah. the, police, the police made quite a big thing of it trying to find mm. it. She was wearing a cladag brooch.
1: Um, the brooch, on, yes. On her
0: jacket, which was quite a distinctive Irish um, insignia that she was wearing on her on her jacket at the time and police were very keen to try and track it down certainly after she went missing um, and that's never been found
1: and of course Jane's clothes
0: well i mean i mean that is the obvious missing item from that scene. All of once them. again mm. they've never been found and in terms of the search i i, I I take it from that that Toby means when Mr. Edwards's house was searched. No, uh, there was nothing of of uh, linking him directly to either of the young women, and uh, um, if they had, um, you know, there might be that might have been a completely different outcome. Uh,
2: and from Maria. Do you know what type of evidence will be brought to the judge that links Mr Edwards to the murder of Sarah Spears? In previous podcasts, it has been mentioned that this is the prosecution's only chance at convicting him for that crime. However, we have heard very minimal evidence. Well,
1: there is none. She's yeah, never been so found.
2: A, there is none.
0: Yeah, so it's, that's a very... I mean, we've discussed it in previous episodes. Maria um, you know, might not have gone through them all, but it's a purely circumstantial case with Sarah and it's 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 based largely around the propensity, propensity or the, like, yeah. the likelihood of of someone else having um, carried out back crime uh, as well as Jane and Kira and so that's why it's it's sort of cascade effect Kira's case is the strongest because there the it is the most there's physical evidence like dna evidence and forensic evidence fiber evidence um And then, obviously, in Jane's case, there's fiber evidence, but with Sarah, because of the lack of the body, um, there is very little direct evidence. But what the prosecution will argue eventually when we come to that in their closing arguments is that if Mr Edwards is convicted of Kira's and of Jane's, then what what are the chances, what is the likelihood that someone else could have committed this other crime at the same time, in the same geographic location, um, at the same time of night, um, at, on a weekend, um, other than the person who um, killed um, Jane and Kira, so it's a purely substantial, c- circumstantial case, and it's very and it hinges very much on the verdicts um, in, in the other two.
1: And if he's just found guilty of one, um, the outcome would be the same, as far as sentencing.
0: Uh, yeah, well, yes, that's. that's you don't true. have
1: those American ones where they add on three hundred years for each one, sort of thing. It's no, that's true. One. It's, a, hmm.
0: it's a mandatory life sentence for murder in, in Western Australia. unwillful murder, I think. We should probably check that. But um, um, but his the parole um, eligibility will then come in if he's if he's mm-hmm. only found guilty of one or and and in terms of double jeopardy, which is the end of Maria's question. Um, She's right. Um, It's basically a one-shot deal um, unless, um, for instance, if Sarah's body was discovered at some stage down the track, um, there might be a very, very slim chance the case would be reopened. But it, it is a very, very, very rare occurrence.
2: Well, thank you both for your time in court today and thanks to our listeners. You can contact us on Claremont Podcast at wanews.com.au. For more details on the trial, head to thewest.com.au where you'll find Tim's news articles. And we look forward to chatting to you all again tomorrow for day 30 of Claremont in Conversation.
0: This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy, and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the Trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.